This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Listen in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash knowitall. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I am a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com and be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. If you are tweeting, find me on Twitter at Allison R. Brown and use the hashtag KnowItAllABC for information about the show. So today, I want to highlight the student voices that we've heard since we first started the show, Know It All, in November of last year. Uh, before we do that, though, let's talk about what's coming up next. So next week, we will have the creators of the documentary, American Promise, which follows two black boys through their enrollment at one of the most exclusive private schools in America. The filmmaker's son is one of the boys whose experiences the filmmakers documented. In an upcoming episode of Know It All, we will also be talking about Syria. We've all been hearing about Syria, what's going on in Syria, the crisis there in Syria with civil war and the president's decision now delayed because of the Syrian government's agreement to turn over its chemical weapons to launch airstrikes there in Syria and the pushback he's gotten from the public and his efforts to convince Congress to support his efforts there. But we'll be talking about this from an education perspective, of course. We'll be talking about children in Syria and what is happening with their education in their, in their country. Children are being displaced from their homes. They are seeking refugee status in neighboring countries. Much of the rhetoric here in the United States started because of the chemical warfare that was waged there, allegedly by the Syrian government, especially against children who perished as a result of the chemicals that were used there in the Civil War. We'll be talking with experts about the Civil War in Syria and what it means for children's education. A brief word. This Sunday, we will commemorate the, bomb, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, a church bombing that killed four little girls, 14-year-old Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson, and 11-year-old Denise McNair. We have a lot of work to do when it comes to our children and supporting all of our children equitably, and this opportunity, give, this commemoration gives us an opportunity to really reflect on how far we've come, the progress that we've made, and how we can build on that progress to make this country safe and secure and successful for all of our children. So I want to take this moment right now just to commemorate the lives, the four lives, young lives that were lost 50 years ago in that 16th Street Baptist Church bombing. And now, thinking about our children, let's start with one of my favorite clips. This is from a show that we did about student voice, and this clip is of Nikhil Goyal, a student who is expressing his frustration with his educational experience. Let's listen. When I was younger, I loved learning outside of school. It was 
something that was much more interesting to me than sitting in a classroom. And over time, I came to the realization that in the classroom, I was seen not as a human being or a test score, just a number among the thousands in a spreadsheet. The school isn't working. Many people like to say that the education system is broken. It's not broken. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do when it was designed, create industrial compliant cogs and machines. And it worked for a long time. Countries that adopted these type of uh, education systems, especially the United States, raced ahead of countries that didn't, especially in the 19th and 20th century. But as you can see, in the past 10 to 30 years, everything has changed. Entire industries have been revolutionized. Yet education remains in this noble kind of style. The key to surviving and thriving in this new age depends on your ability to adapt, invent, and reinvent yourself each and every day. You have to be the startup of your life. Now, all the rules are gone that we saw in the past few decades. We're becoming a society that's more creative and more innovative, and we need to have an education system that meets those type of standards. Kids are crying out for a new type of education that gives them opportunities to pump their creative juices. So it makes them feel not like a product of a factory, but simply a human being. Let kids go free. Give them some power. Sit back and watch the show. Now, in the classroom today, it's, it's very differently structured than what's going on in the real world. We have to bridge the gap between community and the world. Alvin Toffler once said, the best way to predict the future is to create. Now is the time. This is our make or break moment. If we do not fix education right now, then our future isn't due. No tweaks, a revolution. So I wanted to play this clip because I thought that it captured a lot of the work that we do here at Know It All and the conversations that we have about how we need to grow and evolve for the benefit of our children. And this TED Talk from Nikhil Goyal really hit on how students can participate in their own educational development and how the traditional education structure must be redesigned beyond children sitting at their desks and listening to a lecture and, and um, bubbling in tests and filling out uh, worksheets, but you know, acknowledging that we are a different world now, we are a different country than we were when traditional education and traditional public schooling came to be. And much like the law, which has not really evolved in the area of civil rights and education beyond 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed, education and, and public schooling also in too many cases has not evolved much either. Learning, as <coughs> Keel says, can and should take place outside of the classroom. Learning is an everyday, all-day occurrence. Children are sponges and they're excited about learning. That's true. The truth is, really, we all are. Think about your daily experiences. You're listening to the news. You're attending webinars or seminars. You're listening to podcasts such as this one. You're even observing you know, the birds in the trees and the squirrels interacting and the, the the trees growing, and we're all constant receptacles for information. We are all constantly learning, and there are different ways to receive information. There are different ways to learn. We all learn very differently. So I love this clip from Nikhil because I think he really gets at that. He says you should be the startup of your life, and as an entrepreneur, I certainly am constantly encouraging and exploring the possibility of in infusing entrepreneurship with education and entrepreneurial learning, and uh, I, I think it's, it's very, it's, 
it's key that we all continue to think that way and to be entrepreneurial in our ways. Um, I want to play another clip. This is of Suli Brakes, who had a very powerful poem about his education. Let's listen. Now, I'm not saying that school is evil and there's nothing to gain, but all I'm saying is understand your motives and reassess your aims. Because if you want a job working for someone else, then help yourself. But then that would be a contradiction, because you wouldn't really be helping yourself, you'd be helping somebody else. There's a saying which says, if you don't build your dream, someone else will hire you to help build theirs. Redefine how you view education. Understand its true meaning. Education is not just about regurgitating facts from a book or someone else's opinion on a subject to pass an exam. Look at it. Picasso was educated in creating art. Shakespeare was educated in the art of all that was written. Colonel Harlan Sanders was educated in the art of creating Kentucky Fried Chicken. I once saw David Beckham take a free kick. I watched as the side of his Adidas-sponsored boot hit the painting level of the ball at angle which caused it to travel towards the skies as though it was destined for the heavens. And then as it reached the peak of its momentum, as though it changed its mind, it switched directions. I watched as the goalkeeper froze, as though recited himself the laws of physics, and as though his brain was negotiating with his eyes that it was indeed witnessing the spectacle of the leather swan that was swooping towards it, and then reacting. Only a fraction of a millisecond too late. And before the net of the goal embraced the FIFA sponsored ball as then with the prodigal son returning home, and the country that I live in erupted into cheers, I looked at the play and thought, damn. Looking at David Beckham, there's more than one way in this world to be an educated man. There's more than one way to be an educated man. Imagine that. Uh, you know, I, I recently interviewed my friend Kathy Finney, who is the founder of Digital Undivided, and uh, you know, her goal is to make sure that she is connecting women of color with this digital technology explosion, and that she is encouraging uh, digital and technology exploration for female entrepreneurs. And she talked about how uh, college is really becoming, the notion of college is being reframed in the minds of these young entrepreneurs who are developing apps and learning to code and other things at 14 and 15 and 16, and then selling their their companies and selling their ideas uh, when they, they you know, before they reach the age of college and and uh, the time to go to college, and uh, they are you know set for life from their their um, their invention and from their innovation, and so they may go to college. They may take some classes here and there in order to continue their learning, uh, but the notion of college as a necessary tool for survival has changed and is changing for that generation and for that group of children and students uh, and and young people who are exploring um, their own abilities and um, and really exploring new ways of of uh, new methods of entrepreneurship so um you know there there 
are several different ways to categorize a learned man or woman. And uh, I think, you know, I, I appreciate Suli Brakes and his poem because he really touches on the, the idea that we don't have to be cogs in a wheel. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all need to receive the same education. We hear a lot about differentiated instruction and education, and I think differentiated instruction is an ideal. It is uh, something that we, toward which we all should aspire for, whether we're, we're parenting children, uh, whether we are teaching children in a classroom. And we know that differentiated instruction is, is very difficult. It is a new way of doing things. It means that, that teachers have to really take a step back, educators have to take a step back and really assess every single child and where every single child is in the, on the learning spectrum uh, and, and in the world of, of learning generally. And then based on that assessment, develop different strategies and different approaches for filling children's heads with information and for helping children to really grasp the information that is important and that they should know. So the the um, idea of differentiated instruction is uh, is conceptually difficult. Uh, however, I think you know we are all individuals and we all should be able to um participate in not just receiving education but in the educational process and how we receive information and in what form uh and and so this is why I really love the Suey Breaks poem because I think it really touches on that um I want to play another clip. This is another student, and, you know, I, I I say often, and I will say again, that I think one of the missing components in discussions about current contemporary discussions about education and school reform, one of the missing pieces is student voice, and I cannot say it enough. I think that we have got to listen to our children, and we have got to understand our children and our children's needs um, and so that's why, you know, I think it's important that we focus and that we really begin to with um, the the students and hear from them first. So this is Edward Ward who gave testimony about his experience in high school. Let's listen. I grew up on the west side of Chicago. Poverty and violence are prevalent in my community. Many of us come from families where it's a constant struggle to pay bills. I've seen how my fellow students did all they could to focus on getting an education, despite the economic hardships they experienced at home. Many of them were also taking care of their own siblings and themselves. When I got to high school, I began to see that my fellow classmates were, being, were constantly being suspended from school. When my classmates were suspended, they would disappear for days, and when they were kicked out, they would disappear even for weeks. What was most shocking to me was discovering that they were being suspended for minor infractions, the kinds of infractions that shouldn't merit more than a stern warning or reminder. Unreasonable punishments like these were not rare at my school. My classmates and I saw many other students served with two-day suspensions because, for example, they weren't carrying the proper identification around their necks. Some of my friends would come to school late, sometimes by no fault of their own. I remember one of my peers coming to me saying that she was held in detention and could not be permitted to class because she came late. But it was because she couldn't leave her little brother at home alone until her parents came home from work. Other students were homeless and had trouble getting bus cars to come from far off places where they stayed. My school's environment was very tense. 
halls were full of school security officers whose only purpose seemed to be to serve students with detentions or suspensions. This was nerve-wracking to me because although I was an honor student, I felt constantly in a state of alert, afraid to make even the smallest mistake or create a noise that could enable the security officers to serve me with a detention. Instead of feeling like I could trust them, I felt like I couldn't go to them for general security issues because I would first be interrogated before anything would get done. Our school even had a police processing center, so police could book students then and there. The officers don't get any special training to be in these schools, so they don't treat us like we're misbehaving. They treat us like criminals. Every time there was a fight, the police would step in and handcuff students, even when there was no weapons involved. Some would be sent to the police station in school. A few or some never came back to school after that. I could slowly see the determination to get an education fade from the faces of my peers, because they were convinced that they no longer matter. Until recently, I had a cousin who was attending or. However, he never finished because he was suspended with so much frequency that he eventually dropped out. He had a problem at home. You see, my cousin's mother is a drug addict, and as a young person, he didn't quite know how to deal with that. So he started acting out in class. He was what you would consider to be a class clown. The school believed that by suspending him, it would allow him more time to think about his misbehavior. Instead, it gave him more time alone on the streets and made it easier for him to simply turn to selling drugs and make easy money. Eventually, my cousin was arrested. Where many young people like my cousin feel unwelcome and under siege in their own school, they end up on the streets in the criminal justice system, or worse. I think that schools need to throw out the assumption that young people are all dangerous or a threat. They must work to understand the issues that students face every day. We need solutions, not suspensions. I hope you understand that my experience at war was not an anomaly, but it is what is happening in schools across the country, particularly in communities of color. I would hope in the near future that we will have undone this mistake, that my children will never have to feel anything but welcome in their school. But a problem that my generation did not cause cannot be solved by my generation alone. This was an excellent testimony from Edward Ward, who uh, had recently graduated from his high school in Chicago and was testifying uh, in before a congressional committee um, about the school-to-prison pipeline and the effects of the school-to-prison pipeline on children. And uh, the literal pipeline, you know, there are two aspects of the pipeline. There's the literal portion of the pipeline and there's the uh, the kind of the, the effects, the theoretical pipeline and the the literal pipeline to prison um, out of schools that exists for far too many, especially children of color, uh, black and Latino children in this country uh, where, as, as Edward said, children are, or police are literally stationed within the school building and uh, are able to book children in the schools for uh, what would otherwise be considered to be school disciplinary infractions. Um, you know, I hosted a show with uh, Ryan Wilson and Zoe Savitsky of the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division Educational Opportunity Section, my former colleagues, who uh, did work in the Meridian, Mississippi School District and uh, had recently signed a consent decree with the school district that would essentially eliminate or, or stop the arrest of children out of school for things like talking back to a teacher, uh, wearing the wrong school uniform or uh, wearing their school uniform not the right way as written by the school code, uh, things like uh, talking during quiet time, and other things that wouldn't would not be 
criminal actions if if uh, engaged in by adults on the street uh, and uh, that that were somehow all of a sudden criminal actions when um, when done by black children in this school district. Uh, so that's what Edward is talking about. And then, of course, there is this theoretical school-to-prison pipeline that uh, essentially says when you are punitive in this way with children and you are suspending them and expelling them from school and excluding them from the educational environment as punishment uh, for minor things that could otherwise be corrected or uh, that could for which there could be alternatives to suspension and expulsion that you are uh, really exponentially growing the the likelihood that they will uh, not complete school and that they will end up in the criminal justice system um, and so it's a a few steps removed from the literal pipeline that Edward described uh but it is it is as dangerous uh nonetheless. So, um, you know, I I think we have to be very, very careful. Certainly, discipline and order are very important, and children have to know boundaries, and they, they need that. They expect it. Um, when they don't get it, all hell can break loose. We know that. What we know, however, is that there are suspensions and expulsions don't work as punishment. That is not an appropriate punishment. There are ways that children who maybe are um, in trouble for writing on school property um, as restorative justice could clean what they've written um, and and clean help clean, help the cleaning staff to clean the school as punishment, um, so that they're actually seeing the consequences of their behavior and they're learning to take responsibility for that, and they are learning that their actions actually have some kind of impact on other people, not just themselves. Uh, so, you know, if if students are fighting in school, um, you know, of course you want to separate them and let the situation cool down. Uh, but then, again, with peer mediation uh, and restorative justice, the notion is that the students then would sit down with one another to have a conversation and that ultimately when that that conversation is appropriately guided the the students will will reach a point of at least understanding of one another and understanding of one another as human beings um and develop empathy from one another and that that could then radiate to the community their surrounding community um and you know at the very least to their their peers within the school building um, which is far more effective than kicking them out of school with no converse, no further conversation uh, and leaving them to the streets to see what would happen. Uh, so, you know, I, I appreciate Mr. Ward's testimony. It was a very brave thing that he did. Um, this testimony actually occurred just two days before the Newtown shooting in uh, Connecticut. And so... Um, the, the conversation shifted a little bit to say, uh, let's stop the school-to-prison pipeline to say, let's be careful in our reactions. Let's make sure that as we are thinking about 
how we can keep our all of our children safe in school, um, and school is still the safest place for all of our children to be. Uh, let's let's make sure that we are not engaging in knee-jerk policies and knee-jerk reactions that would then further exacerbate the school-to-prison pipeline for black and brown children by adding and increasing police and police equipment and police culture in in schools, um, and particularly in predominantly black and Latino schools. Uh, so, you know, Edward Edward's voice was a very important voice in that overall conversation. Um, I want to play now a clip from the Frontline show poor kid, about poor kids and um, the effects of poverty on children. Let's listen. In America today, child poverty has reached record levels with over 16 million children now affected. To us, it's just how we live. You don't get to make choices in how you live. One in 13 Americans is now unemployed, and many children are growing up with little hope for their future. I'm surprised by how things can change so fast. You can go from doing okay to going hungry and on the verge of being homeless again. Food banks struggle to keep up with demand, and homeless shelters have long waiting lists as even middle-income families sometimes lose their homes with just a few days' notice. If the TV can fit in your school bag, you can take it. <laughs> if it didn't fit, you couldn't take it. We ask these children what a life being poor in America really looks like through their eyes. So if you haven't seen that episode of Frontline, please go on the Frontline website, find it, um, watch it. It is heart-wrenching, and it is very important. I think you know we often speak about education and education policy and policy um, that will impact on families, and we we speak about poverty and uh we you know we hear and see news coverage this show really brought home that we are talking about real people and real people who have for whatever reason hit on very difficult times in what is a very difficult time overall the the country is deep deep in debt and uh, people are struggling. And the children are the most impacted by poverty. Uh, it can be shameful for them. It can be devastating for them. And the, uh, you know, what really has stuck in my head is the, the little girl in the clip who, who says, you know, they don't, the children don't actually have choices in how they live and where they live and, and what way they, they live. They have no say. Uh, they have ended up in that position by no fault of their own. And uh, as difficult as that is for their parents and for the people who are responsible, who are their caretakers, um, you know, the, the children really are the innocent in that. And I attended a talk yesterday in which uh, Dr. Pedro Noguera was 
the one of the presenters and he made the point that hopelessness more and more is deeply rooted in our children's conscience conscience and uh hopelessness is is when when people are hopeless uh, they act very different than they do when they have hope that they will be productive in their lives, that they will be successful in their lives. And we, uh, as a as a country, have got to figure out a way to put hope back in the lives of children and in the eyes of children so that they can see themselves as successful at some point in the future. And our current educational structure, there are pieces of it that work well, and we have got to find those pieces I don't care if those pieces are public school or charter school or private school. Whatever those pieces are that work well for any child, we have to replicate them for the benefit of children for the sake of our community uh, because we cannot keep allowing children to live in poverty. We cannot allow keep allowing children to live as uh, criminals in their own schools uh, and, and uh, it's it really is incumbent on us as the adults to take ownership of that uh, in partnership with our children. Um, I want to play another clip now. This is of Jamisha, another student. Let's let's hear about her educational experience. Yeah. What do you think we should be doing? I think you should talk to the youth and try to see where, where their pain is coming from or what, what do they do to make them get in trouble as much because they probably have stuff on their mind. And, stuff. and you just take it as they just been in the people just take it as them just being an ignorant or disrespectful kid when they probably have more problems than that. So I think you shouldn't just put, they just shouldn't just put days on them or get them suspended for something they probably don't know what's going on. It's probably a, a record behind that. That was Jamisha. And let's hear a clip from Devante, another student. My name is Devante, and I'm 18 years old, and I'm a student at Chicago State University. Some different things I've seen. I've seen a lot of youth being locked up for nonviolent crimes. I've seen youth being beaten. They shouldn't be treated this, this sort of way. We should remember that our youth are still youth. It, does, it definitely doesn't um, contribute anything positive to society. It's just showing that if someone uh, is bad, you beat them. And that's, not, that's definitely not going to help our youth in any sort of way. That's just going to teach them when someone's bad, you beat them too. It's going to just continue the cycle of violence that's just going to keep going and going and going and just never end. I think that we should, that they should let youth know that fighting is not okay, that violence is not okay, and that assaulting another person is not okay. But we should remember that our youth are still human beings and that we that they should not be treated like cold-blooded killers after they got into a fight or after they were selling drugs or doing drugs or something like that. Another thing that should change within the schools, too, they should add more um, extracurricular activities to keep, their, to keep our kids off the street because, and they should um, advertise these extracurricular activities in a positive way. They shouldn't just throw them out there and say, if you do it, you do it. If you don't, you don't. They should want. They should try to push our kids and motivate them to want to get into these extracurricular activities. I think that what they could definitely do with the police situation, there are some police officers that are gang affiliated and that are selling drugs and that are being brutal to um, 
they are being brutal to our youth. Um, I think they should have background checks, a more solid background checks on these police officers because a lot of them are just like they sign up to be a police officer and hey, that's the end of the story. And I think that other police officers need to stop taking the words of police officers as if they're the word as if it's the word of God or something because some of these police officers make up ridiculous stories about some of the youth and about some of what um, these people who they stop on the side of the road and they try to drive away they'll try to they'll they'll shoot them and kill them and shoot them down some of them they just tell these ridiculous stories and it's it's a problem so we should make sure that those people are not in our police force so this is what happens when you listen to the children, to the students. Uh, the recommendations there were um, were robust. They were helpful. They were uh, very instructive. What we heard from Jamisha was that we have to really assess children. They, there are things that children go through. There are children who are experiencing severe trauma, and uh, you know, they're going to bring that trauma with them into the school building, and, and we have to be able to listen to what they're going through and and deal with it rather than tucking it away somewhere so that we don't have to think about it and then trying to instruct them in their ABCs because that's not going to work and it's not going to be helpful for anyone. Uh, we, we heard from Devontae that, you know, we had to, to not criminalize children, um, provide real extracurricular opportunities and broadcast those opportunities, let children and students know what those opportunities are. Background checks for police officers who are going to be stationed in schools. Uh, you know, I certainly speak always and say that I, I think that we have to really dial back the police presence in schools, uh, especially armed police officers. Where, however, the schools have chosen, have elected that course of action, uh, Devante says do a very extensive broad background check on police officers. And engaging students in the process of actually developing a background check tool for uh, police officers who will, um, for police officers who are going to be in, engaging and interacting with students on a regular basis to make sure that they don't have any gang affiliation, uh, that they don't have a history of anger or um, violence, uh, and, and to do kind of probably outside of the scope of the typical background checks for police officers, um, to, to develop a specialized background check tool for police officers who are going into the school environment makes a lot of sense to me. So this, this is what happens when we listen to the students, and this is what happens when, when the children have input and buy-in to their own educational process. Um, I want to play one last clip, and this is of the uh, Interactivity Foundation uh, and Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, um, a collaborative effort to um, bring together and develop a new discussion method. Listen. Welcome to the IF Podcast. I'm Natalie Hopkinson. One thing we've learned in this election is that discourse matters. It can have a big impact on a democratic process, and this is one of the goals of the IF Urban Initiative. It started in early 2012 as a partnership between IF and Howard University Alumni Association. 
Let's head over to Shea Billy in Washington's Petworth neighborhood and listen in. Wanted to thank everybody for coming out to the Interactivity Foundation and Urban Debate Watch. I'm Natalie Hopkinson and I'm a fellow with the Interactivity Foundation. Just really briefly, the Interactivity Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that's based in Harpersburg, West Virginia. And the work of the foundation is actually what you guys were just doing, which is doing small group policy discussions. At each of your table, there's been a facilitator that's been sort of leading the discussion, and we've actually been doing this all year long. In discussions, we aim for civil, engaged discussions where people explore policy possibilities generated in reports edited by IF fellows. As the election season comes to a close, I'd like to emphasize that for IF, talking about the public decisions we make as a society is not something that only happens when election is coming up. We do this day in and day out. So the Interactivity Foundation and uh, Allison Ground Consulting have partnered, and we have developed a new discussion method, and that discussion method has been piloted in a school here in D.C. and is being uh, replicated elsewhere, and we uh, bring in facilitators who are trained in the Foundation's discussion method to bring stakeholders to the table for conversations. So principals, um, staff members, teachers, parents, students for high school students and colleges, uh, for high schools and colleges, uh, and we listen to them, we hear their concerns. Uh, within a legal framework, then, I develop recommendations based on those concerns. Uh, we have a series of discussions, facilitate a series of discussions with the stakeholders, um, and we really hear parent voice, we really hear student voice, and we really understand the nuances that make schools unique, uh, the, the, the characteristics that make schools what they are and that give schools their, their personalities. Um, you know, I've worked for the federal government, and I certainly know that it can be very difficult to develop remedies from Washington, D.C. that will be conducive to um, a small school in the middle of Georgia uh, or in, um, the, in southern Florida or... Um, in you know in an urban setting in Maine uh, or in California, uh, schools are very very different and they do have their different personalities and they should. And so this um, this method really takes that into account. Uh, and and we are um, excited about it. We are looking to roll it out elsewhere. Um, and so you know again, tweet with me, uh, email me, uh, check out my blog, uh, give me a call. And, you know, we'll definitely be um, letting you know more about the the method um, and how we are incorporating the students and focusing on student equity uh, in what we are doing. So I want to thank you for joining us today on Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education. Remember to follow Know-It-All at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know-it-all. Check out my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. If you're tweeting about the show, find me at Allison R. Brown and use the hashtag KnowItAllABC. And if you are on Facebook, check out our Facebook page as well. I want to close right now. We did a show about um, bullying and harassment and, um, you know, talking about it, how it gets better. And I want to close with um, the men's chorus the Los Angeles Men's Chorus, 
uh, who were, I, I love this take. Um, this this song is just fantastic, and I think it's a great way to close. I wish you a wonderful week. Remember to join me next week when I'm going to be talking with the um, creators and the producers of the American Promise documentary. My best to you. <laughs>